outline that the text of Scripture this week is not Philippians. Uh, the Lord has led me just to take a one Sunday hiatus from that, but there is a connection. On your outline, I initially said there are three reasons I want to preach on this. Actually, I've added one more as I've prayed over this week. Uh, I think the passage we're going to look at this morning uh, is a is a natural break. I use that word natural. They didn't have chapters and verses when they wrote letters. Paul and in dictating say, okay, chapter one's done, now let's do chapter two. But we do that and it helps us. But there is a natural break between the end of chapter one that we stopped at last week and beginning in chapter two, Lord willing, next week. But there's another reason as well. We've been talking a lot, and if you watch the announcements that they flash across the screen and from the announcements in the bulletin, we are telling our people here there are many opportunities to serve. Many. And so this morning I would like to give, if I may, a theology of serving. Jesus makes it very clear what it's all about. And so I want to bring that to you from his word. Opportunities are being revealed and we want you to grasp them as it were. Thirdly, an understanding of this teaching will stand us in good stead, not only for today, at this point in the history of living legacy, but in the future as well. And the fourth one that I added as I was praying and thinking about this is this is really a segue to chapter 2. If you're reading Philippians every day, I won't ask you to raise your hand. If you're reading it once a week, I won't ask you to raise your hand. But if you are familiar with it, perhaps more than you have been in the past, you know that chapter 2 starts something that flows out of chapter 1 and talks about this very subject. So we finished chapter 1, now let's look at this bridge, this segue on the subject of serving, and then Lord willing, next week we will get into this uh, next section of Philippians chapter 2. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 10. Actually, there's two places. I'm just going to read Mark chapter 10 and refer to Matthew chapter 20. Two different accounts of the same thing. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, down through verse 45, Jesus deals with a problem that his disciples have on a regular basis. And as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's something that we struggle with too. At least I do. I truly do. It's something that I have to be brought back over and over again. Look, if you will, with me, please, at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, let me pause there. You don't have to turn back to your Bible, but in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, talking about the same idea, the same event, it says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons kneeling before him and asking for something. So we've got mom and the two boys coming to Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he, Jesus, said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us or give permission, allow us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, yes, we are able. And Jesus then said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, the other disciples, heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them, all of them now, to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The lesson Jesus here teaches is not the only place we find this in his earthly ministry. Back in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, just a little bit previous to this, we read these words. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, they asked him, or he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, and I'm going to put in parentheses there, in my kingdom, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child and put the child in the midst of them, and taking that child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Then we have the text in which we read a moment ago, but also, interestingly, even at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus is betrayed, another lesson has to be taught on this subject. I quote Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I, speaking about himself, I am among you as one who serves. This is a key element of church life and church health, always. This is not one of those things that can kind of be put aside and then, oh, well, sometime later we'll pick it back up and reinstitute it. This is an ongoing need in the body of Christ as we relate one to another and as we reach out, reaching out to the lost, bringing them to faith in Christ and helping them to grow. The question comes to me then, why is there so much repetition on this spiritual truth? Well, quite honestly, because they're fighting against it. They're resisting what he's endeavoring to teach. They're like a lot of us, hard-hearted, obstinate, who don't learn lessons all that quickly. Things have not changed today, have they? Don't we have the same spiritual malady and need to be reminded of this truth on a frequent basis? The Bible makes it very clear about how God feels about pride and humility, both in the Old and the New Testament. Speaking of pride in the Old Testament, we read in Proverbs 6, God hates it. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate pride. 
In other words, truly adoring God is to hate pride. In Proverbs 16, it says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4 says, a proud heart is sin, sin. In the New Testament, however, Romans 1.30 says, pride is an element of the reprobate mind. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, pride comes from the devil. 1 John chapter 2, pride is the characteristic of the world system and its inhabitants. 1 Timothy 6 says, pride is the mark of false teachers. And James chapter 4 tells us that pride alienates one from God because God resists or holds back His blessing upon those who are proud. On the other hand, James 4, 6 says, God gives grace to the humble. Humility is a virtue that God honors. Pride He hates, humility He honors. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is high, yet He has respect to those who are humble. Isaiah 66, and verse 2, To this person will I look, even to one who is poor, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. All evidences of true humility. In Psalm 10, it says, The Lord hears the desire of the humble. And two different times in Proverbs, chapter 15 and chapter 18, it says, Before honor is humility. The path to true honor in the kingdom of God is the path that begins with humility. And in the New Testament, we read thoughts like this. We are sons and daughters of God who are to put on humility. We are to be clothed with humility, and we are to walk in humility. Now, these men should have known better, shouldn't they? However, this is a difficult lesson to learn and very easy to forget. Why? Because we need to be reminded that when we came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it did not completely eradicate the old man. And one of the dominant characteristics of the old nature, the old sinful nature, is this. I want to be exalted. I want to be elevated above others. I want to be first in importance. Self-ambition is a constant temptation. And here James and John come asking for the top seats in the kingdom of Jesus. You know what they want to be? They want to be great. You ever heard that little chorus? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. They wanted to be great according to their understanding. Well, Jesus uses this event to reteach a vital truth to all who would follow him and know his blessing and his presence in their life. Here's the wonderful thing in in the lives of these men. They did eventually get it. They they did. And they followed Christ and and they learned humility. But it was not something that came easy. And praise the Lord, if you struggle with this and if you're alive and breathing and you're a Christian, you are. God will give us grace as we seek to follow him. So let's look at this passage. Now, you please notice the name of the sermon. What kind of people you got down there at Living Legacy? Oh, they're great. Can I be a part of your church? Yeah, but you got to be great to be there. What do you have to be to be great? Take this text and teach it to them. We're looking for great Christians here, aren't we? According to what the scriptures say, we want to be a great congregation of followers of Christ. All right, look with me, if you will, at the text. 
Mark chapter 10, number one, we have their self-centered exclamation. Verses 35 through 40. Their request comes in verses 35 through 37. James and John, the sons of Zebedee and their mom, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, that's pretty bold. I mean, here, blank check. Sign it and give it to us. What audacity. Just give us what we want. And he said to them, What do you want? They said, grant one of us to sit on your right hand and one of us to sit on your left side when you come in your glory. Does that remind you of a couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, chapter 48 and verse 11? God says, I will not share my glory with anyone else. And these men were familiar with the Old Testament. What an audacious request that they make. They approach Jesus they ask for positions of prominence and preeminence and proximity and power. They come asking to be allowed to sit with him in the highest positions of his coming kingdom. The right-hand seat was reserved for the person who was second in rank, and the left-hand seat was for the third person in the third rank. These men saw themselves as leaders and not as servants among the disciples, and they wanted their positions to be public and permanent. Now, what is so terrible, among other things, about this request is its timing. In chapter 9, look at verses 33 and 34. Chapter 9 of Mark, verses 33 and verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He had just taught them to, him, to them. They had heard his teaching. And in verses 33 and verse 34 of chapter 10, notice what precedes this. He says in verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is telling them the cross is looming on the horizon. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, I want to believe that if I was there, but I don't think I would have, I would have been more sympathetic to what Jesus just said. He just announced he's going to the cross, he's going to be crucified, how he's going to be sorely treated by sinners. And what do they do? All they can think about is climbing to the top. All they can see is their position on the totem pole. Jesus is about to die a horrible death for sin, and they're playing the who's going to be first up to this point. It's cold-hearted, it's self-centered, and it's without sympathy, is their request. These men up to this point did not grasp the idea that their leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, was headed to a cross. All they could see was the crown. They wanted the crown, but they didn't want to go by the way of the cross. They wanted the crown without the cross. They wanted the glory without the pain. They wanted the reward without having to pay the price. May I say today that that is very much alive. It is a temptation in all of our hearts to skirt the issue of suffering and going the way of the cross for the Lord Jesus so we can get to the crown and the glory and the reward. And, and one of the things that I think is so terrible is they brought their mommy with them. 
I can't really discern if she asked the question or if they did. Maybe she came up and said, Jesus, and by the way, do you know who their mother was? If you look at, uh, let's see, Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19, you put them all together, her name was Salome. She is Jesus' aunt. So what would that make these boys? His cousins. We're playing the family card here. And they put pressure on him as family members who, you know, we family all stick together. And so they come up with this request. James and John, the cousins, are asking for a special favor from their cousin Jesus. As we look at this, my question to me and to you is this, do we really understand what's going on here? This is no insignificant thing. It's brash. After all of the humility that they'd seen evidence before them in the life of Jesus Christ in their presence, how dare they ask something like that? They're coming down to the last week of his life. Haven't they learned anything about him? Everything he ever said was an expression of his condescension, of his humility, all that he did. And here they are with a bold, brash, proud, sinfully arrogant, selfishly ambitious request. It's ugly. It's so unchrist kingdom like. It's brutal. And it's also unloving because they were depreciating the relationship they had with these other guys. They were wanting to set themselves up above these guys. In the body of Christ, we are to love one another. They weren't showing a very loving spirit toward their brothers in the Lord. It is ugly, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that caused Jesus the next week when he met with them in the upper room. You remember what he said? The world will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love one for another. And what they're doing is the characterization of a strong ambition, a driving ambition that is manipulating and self-promoting. And that's the way it is in the world in which we live. That's the kind of world our children and grandchildren are being raised and being surrounded by all the time. How do you get to the top in the world? Be driven. Be ambitious. Be self-confident. Step on whomever you have to to get to the top. Just make sure you get to the top and get the great position above others. Self-centered, self-ambitious, self-promoting. They play that card as much as they can to get what they want. It's a terrible request. It really is. Well, how does Jesus respond to this? Back to Mark chapter 10. Jesus said in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Hmm. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? How did they respond? Oh yeah, we can do that. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 38, Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You haven't got a clue. Your request is outside the realm of your own understanding. Verse 38 also is asking, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to endure, undergo the baptism that I'm going to undergo? 
Now, those words are very significant. The word cup there, do you remember what Jesus asked to be taken away from in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it is possible, let this cup. What is that cup? That cup is the fury and the wrath of God. Christ Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was aware that before him lay the full, complete outpouring of God's wrath against sin. And he knew that he was going to bear that. And in his humanity, he was not trying to shirk away from what God called him to do. But in his humanity, he was beginning to feel the weight of it. And he says, oh, Father, if it's possible. He's not saying, he is not saying, can we get another plan B here and, and kind of avoid the cross? He's speaking as a man here, showing the full humanity of Jesus. But he does end with this, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. So the cup is the wrath of God, the full, complete wrath of God against sin. And the word baptism here, it's not talking about Christian baptism, where Christians are baptized in the waters to express outwardly what's happened in their hearts. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is the cup, and what he's talking about here in the baptism we could use the word immersed. Are you able to be plunged into? Are you able to be completely submerged into the kind of baptism that I'm going to endure? Oh, dear folks, drinking the cup and being baptized are references to suffering, extreme, intense suffering. And what our Lord is saying is this, look, you're asking to be elevated in the kingdom. Do you understand that that is reserved as a reward that is relative to the degree of suffering? It's proportionate to the degree of suffering that you endure. You remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12? If we suffer with him, then we shall reign with him. To the degree that you suffer for Christ, that's how you're going to enjoy the reign of heaven with him. That's the principle here. You guys want glory, but you don't want suffering. When Jesus talked about his cross, they didn't want to even talk about that. You remember what Peter said in Matthew 16? After Jesus talked about the cross, Peter goes, in our understanding, oh, shame on you, Lord, don't talk like that. You're not going to a cross. You're our leader. You're going to deliver us from Rome. We don't want that cross stuff. We want the reward stuff. We want the glory stuff, but we don't want the suffering. They are ignorant of the basic principle that reward and honor corresponds directly to sacrificial suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That's an Old Testament idiom for taking in something completely and draining it completely. Can you handle all that's to come? Jesus is going to drink the cup of which he asked to be delivered in Matthew 26. That's the image. Drinking the cup was literally imbibing all of it to the bottom, to the last drop. It's an Old Testament idiom, meaning fully absorbing something, fully experiencing something, taking it all in. Interesting, in Psalm 75, it talks about that even the ungodly will drink the cup of God's wrath because of their rebellion. So in Scripture, that cup is very often associated with extreme suffering. Can you do that, he says? Are you able to do that? Can you be baptized? Not talking about Christian baptism that we understand, but can you be immersed into? Can you be plunged into? Can you be submerged totally? Are you able to go all the way under and suffer like I'm going to suffer? Are you to be, as it were, drowned in persecution and ultimately in giving your life as a martyr for the cause of Christ and the gospel? Folks, this is strong language. 
Can you literally drink it all in and be submerged into it? Because that's what you're really asking. If you want the glory, there's the path. You sure you want that? Do you really know what you're asking? Side note. If I were preaching in many parts of the world today, and I would ask that question, they would say, yep, been there, done that. Many pastors get up in the morning, many Christians get up in the morning realizing that before time is over that day, they will have drunk that cup, they will have been baptized into that baptism, and they still follow Jesus Christ with all their hearts, unashamedly, courageously. Verse 39, look at their brash answer. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> you know what that is? That's arrogant over self confidence that is audacious that is ridiculous remember Peter in Luke 22 I will never betray you Lord may all these other guys might but I'll never do that the scriptures say the rest of them kind of piped in so us too us too well what happened typical human pride self-promoting inordinately and selfishly ambitious. It assumes that it can accomplish anything. If there's a mantra in the United States of America that goes around that just makes my skin crawl, if you believe it, you can do anything. Really? I believe I can be an astronaut. Would you like to come on the spaceship with me and let me take you to Mars? If we just believe in ourselves, if we are proud of ourselves, if we are boastful of ourselves, and listen, that kind of nonsense is filtered into the theology of Christendom in this nation. <laughs> Isn't that characteristic of the world today and people's attitudes? Of course they couldn't handle it. These guys knew they, deep down if you push them into a corner, but in their arrogance they just spout off, of course we can do it. Interesting, in Matthew 26, Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophecy about striking the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. Matthew 26, 56 says, they all forsook him and fled. Huh. They couldn't handle it. Here they wanted all the glory in the kingdom, but when the trial came, what did they do? They ran. They ran. Verse 39 goes on. Jesus said, the cup that I drink you will, the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with, you'll be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, it's for those for whom it's been prepared. One commentator said, I wonder who did sit there. <laughs> I wonder who's going to be there. That's not mine to worry about. It's not even mine to ask or to consider. And this answer of Jesus is two things. First of all, it's gentle. He doesn't look at him and say, you knuckleheads, do you have any idea what's happening? And do you know what's coming? He didn't say that. He said, you will drink the cup. You, you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. That's a statement of prophecy. And interesting, is it not? Who was the first martyr? James. Who was the last martyr? John. These two boys. John's martyrdom was carried out, or John's martyrdom was carried out 
as his head was cut off. That's James, I'm sorry, fast and soon. And John's death for Jesus was a slow, disappointing death. They both ended up dying. They would drink. They would be baptized. But to grant such a request put forth was out of the realm of Jesus' ability to give. So in verses 41 through 45, we have Jesus' response, his sovereign response, his sovereign explanation of what's really going on and what they should understand. Now, please notice verse 41. The other guys are standing around. They watch mommy and two boys go up to Jesus, and they heard what, what they asked. And the Bible says in verse 41, what? When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant, and James and John. You ever ask yourself why they got angry? Probably because they got preempted. James and John beat them to the punch. They probably had the same idea. They just were afraid to ask. They didn't have any pull with Jesus like these boys did. The competitiveness was so obvious. In Luke 22 that I read a moment ago, even in the upper room, they're still arguing about this. So in verses 42 through 45, Jesus says this, first of all in verse 42, you know. Pride can cause a mental lapse. Guys, you know something. Let me remind you of that. And what was it? You know that ancient rulers were ambitious, self-promoting, confident, arrogant, self-exalting, dictatorial, and domineering. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That word lorded over them is the word katakorios or katakorio. It is lord with a preposition in front of it. It's a strong word that means to gain the mastery, to subdue those under you, to function like a despot, as an autocratic ruler. If I bring up the name Kim Jong-un, you get an idea what it's like? He says, you know guys like that. You know the history of the world. In your own world, in your own lives, you've seen it. What do they do? They lord it over people. They want the top. They want to climb on top of everybody. They want everybody to serve them and honor them and respect them and do what they want. That's what the Gentiles or the nations outside of the gospel do. And the great men, interesting, hoi megaloi, the big shots, exercise authority. They throw their weight around, sort of a domineering monarchical display of power. These men were used to seeing this. Romans, Caesar, Pilate, Herodians, Herod the Great, and his sons. They saw it with every petty ruler and monarch. The world has always been filled with those kinds of people. And the more corrupt they are, the more unscrupulous they are, the more likely they are to claw their way to the top no matter who gets hurt. The world has been filled with ambitious, overconfident, competitive people who know no limits and no bounds to their ambition. At all costs, driven by their corrupt hearts, their proud hearts, they want the seats of power at the expense of everybody around them. Ambition, overconfidence, competitiveness leads to this kind of, and I put this in quotation marks, greatness. Because Jesus is teaching a lesson on greatness. That kind of greatness works in the world. It does not work in His kingdom. In the history of the church, has not been exempt from those inside the church with that same kind of behavior. You remember a fellow by the name of Diotrephes in 3 John, verses 9 and 10, I quote, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes 
to put himself first does not even acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stop those who want to and puts them out of the church. It's alive and well today. Every church has to fight against it. It's that part of our old nature that if it's not checked and crucified, it will rear its ugly head and do great damage to the body. You know, don't you? Yeah, well, Jesus says in verses 43 and 44, you need to recall something. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Do you remember that word slave? When we first started the book of Philippians, the word doulos, it literally means bond slave, a willing bond slave. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33 that we read a few moments ago, Jesus taught that lesson. He says they came there to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Ah! Pop quiz. On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And what is Jesus saying here? If I want to be a great Christian in living legacy, it will come from serving, not exploiting. It will come from taking the back seat and not driving myself and pushing myself to the front of the line. The idea literally means a table waiter, somebody who serves, not the one being served. The idea is spend your life serving other people and giving them what they need for the sake of Christ. In the kingdom of Jesus, being first belongs to slaves, bond slaves. Slaves were inferior to servants. Did you know that? Servants did a job. Slaves were owned totally. This conference I saw once again, a book that I've referred to before, I would highly recommend it. John MacArthur wrote a book called Slave a couple years ago. It's the finest exposition of that word on the scriptures. And if I remember correctly, and sometimes I do not remember all that correctly, but if I remember correctly, one of the things that he said in that, that every time the word servant is used in the Bible except for one, it should be translated slave. This idea of a slave, somebody who is owned, someone who is controlled, whose only passion is to please the master. He is saying, consider everybody a person to be served and consider everyone to be your master. Let me stop there. Is that radical or what? Consider every person who needs to be served and all people need to be served and I need to have that in my mind. But also consider everyone to be your master in the body of Christ. You are obligated not only do you have the opportunity to serve, says Mr. Spurgeon, you have the obligation to serve in the body of Christ. And then he concludes with this. Do you need an illustration of how to carry this out? Do you need an example? Do you need a model on how to do this? Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus loves that name title for Himself, Son of Man. He uses it regularly throughout the Gospels. Even the Son of Man. Who's the model? Why, well, it's the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came 
not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. One of the first messages I preached here was on the subject of redemption. Do you remember what that means? To redeem means to give your life to pay the debt for someone else. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. The greatest service and the greatest slavery were exhibited by Jesus. He did not come to be served. He's not like other kings. He's not like other rulers. What we say is that he condescended. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Two things. He did not come like all other kings to be served. Number one, he came to serve. He didn't come merely to be Lord and Master. He came also, secondly, to be a slave of his father and came to be a servant to serve and then to give his life in obedience to what could be deemed slavery. We'll see this in the next week or so when we get to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, will give to us this same idea. Paul will say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the same thing that Paul and Jesus are saying together. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but the interest of others. And here's your model. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a slave. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what happened to him? Paul goes on to say that God highly exalted him. He's given him a great name. He made the greatest sacrifice, so he was the most exalted. God gave him a name, and by the way, that name is Lord, to the glory of God. Here's the principle once again. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the glory. The greatest sacrifice gets the greatest glory. That's Christ, that's the model, and that's the pattern for us to seek to follow in his footsteps. So as we think about the subject of serving, you know it's easy to do a job in service in the church without my heart being in it. Before I'm going to be the servant that God's going to reward and honor, I have to have this mindset. That's why verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2 says, let this mind, as I think, so I will act. It's a mindset. So in closing, Christians, we need this kind of people in the church. We need people who could care less if they're ever recognized as long as God's work is accomplished. May I say that again? We need people in the church who could care less if they are ever recognized as long as God's work is accomplished. We need people who can see beyond themselves to the need of others. We need people who willingly become slaves so that other people can be served. God's kingdom is a paradox, but it's nonetheless true. For the Christian, the way up is always down. Questions 
Is that the path I'm walking? Am I actively seeking ways to serve others? We have places of ministry in this church where I can serve. Am I serving in them? There are people all around us who need to know about Christ. Am I telling them? There are needs on every hand. Am I seeking to meet those needs? Am I being a servant of God by selflessly serving others? And as one fellow said, commenting on this very fact, if the Lord has touched your heart about this subject, today's a good day to enlist to do it. I call it the John F. Kennedy motto. I just change a few words. Yesterday in the airport, there was some history channel talking about John F. Kennedy and had very uh, many pictures and things about his life. And one of the things that was brought up was his inauguration. Do you remember his famous phrase? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The modern Western mindset is, what are you going to do for me? What programs do you have for my children? What are you going to do for me? That's not what Jesus is saying here. A church full of servants are always asking, if not out loud on there, how can I serve others in this church? How can I serve this community? There are great needs in this community. Don't have to go very far. Is that my mindset? And if it's not, then we ought to ask God to forgive us for having the wrong mindset and to remind us of the proper mindset and begin to act upon it. Servants. Servants. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, if you've never heard before, Jesus came to earth to give His life as a ransom for those who are lost. He willingly humbled himself and took the form of a slave for the express purpose to release those who were slaves to sin so that they could be free forever. And so once again this morning, as I often try to do, I implore you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I beg you, I beseech you, turn from your sin. If you're not a Christian, you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. Sin calls the shots and you obey its orders. And what I'm asking you today to do is to think very seriously about where you're headed for eternity. If you die still a slave to sin, you will endure the punishment for that sin as a slave for all of eternity. Turn from your sin. Receive Jesus Christ, the liberator, or as a modern song that I really like, the chain breaker, who takes the chains of sin and sets us free. And you will know for the first time what real freedom is. Scripture says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Early in Jesus' ministry, you can read this in Luke chapter 4, the custom was for the rabbis to stand up in the temple the book was handed to them to read something and then talk about it. When Jesus' turn came, he rose and they gave him the book. He turned to Isaiah chapter 61. If you have your Bible and you should, please turn there with me, please. Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus turned to this passage. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And he, he read this. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's a word that talks about His Messiahship. He's the anointed one. The Lord has anointed me to, now notice what He's supposed to do, to bring good news to those who are poor. What good news could poor people be given? Not a handout. I got the greatest riches you'll ever imagine. Good news for people who are poor. He's talking about poor spiritually. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal a heart that is crushed by the weight of life and circumstances and sin. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Folks, 2018 is still the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ is still in the business of doing this. To all who call upon Him in faith, to all who say, I'm done with my sin, I'm done in my rebellion against Jesus, I will be delivered from this. Jesus, deliver me. Break these chains in my life. And the day of the vengeance of our God. There's a day coming very soon when the full wrath of God will be poured out, not upon those for whom Jesus died on the cross. He bore it one time. And if you're a Christian this morning, you will never bear the wrath of God, ever. But if you're not a Christian, and you die in your sin, you will bear that wrath forever and ever. And You know, there's always, there's always a hope factor if you know it's going to end. No matter how bad it is, no matter how terrible the situation may be, if you have any hope whatsoever it's going to pass, you can hang on. But there is no hope after this. If you die in your sin, still a slave to sin, you will bear God's wrath forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The day of His vengeance. Jesus comes as the liberator, but He also comes as the judge for those who refuse to know Him and receive Him. To comfort those who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Jesus read that text. He closed the book and He said this. Today, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What did He say? I'm the one that Isaiah wrote about. And they jumped up off their wooden stools and said, Oh, good, the Messiah's here, right? They grabbed a hold of him and led him out to throw him off the cliff, but his time had not come, and so he sovereignly escaped their clutches. But his time did come eventually, and he gave his life, and he died and bore the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. I plead with you, if you don't know Jesus, come. Know the freedom and liberty that He alone can give.